This episode is made possible by Armoire. I love genius companies founded by women, and Armoire is one of them. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days, and then when you're ready for new clothes, you just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. To me, Armoire Armoire solves so many issues I struggle with today, the biggest one being accumulation of stuff. Let's face it, women want to feel on trend and fresh in their clothes, so we like to shop for new clothes often. But I also get overwhelmed when I have too much to choose from, which happens after years of shopping. I forget what clothes I have and I end up wearing the same thing over and over. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothing for every occasion and then send it back. Whether you're planning your outfit for a date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room without ever having to brave a department store fitting room with those unflattering fluorescent lights again. Trust me, your overly cramped closet and the environment will thank you. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash heel. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash heel to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to The Heal Podcast. I'm Kelly Noonan-Gores, and every week I speak to the leading doctors, healers, spiritual teachers, and scientists to find out what is truly possible when it comes to healing. I also interview real people with extraordinary healing stories. My philosophy is what's possible for one is possible for all. On today's episode of The Heal Podcast, I interview Peter Crone, the mind architect. What is a mind architect, you ask? Well, according to Goop, it's what you call someone who can look at the human psyche, see all of its false constructs, all of its limiting self-imposed boundaries, and unravel them like a sweater with a loose thread. Peter Crone is just amazing. I've worked with him for 10 years, and he is definitely one of the most powerful people I've worked with. His work is so transformative and life-changing, life-saving. The stories that he tells in this podcast are mind-blowing and just will crack open your heart. We get into some of my personal issues and get pretty deep, which is quite uncomfortable to share with the world, but I'm hoping by sharing some of my issues that you will get something out of it and reflect on some things that are limiting you in your life that you may not have been aware of before this conversation. Peter's truly powerful. His main product is freedom. He works with world-class athletes. He works with people with physical illness and helps them transform and heal. It's really incredible. He's a gift to this world, and I am so excited and nervous to share this conversation with you. I hope you love him as much as I do. Enjoy. So Peter Crone, welcome. 
I actually met you. Yes. What we realized is 10 years ago. Wow. In a Whole Foods. Mm-hmm. And we were at the uh, prepared food section. And I was, we were debating between the kale salad. The, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And a kale salad with strawberries. Yes, correct. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And somehow we started talking about my digestive issues. <laughs> it's just an occupational hazard. Yes. And you gave More me. More specifically a- about bowel movement. Yes. Let's just go right there. BMs. <clears throat> yeah. We, we, we jumped right to it that day, so we yeah. might as well today as well. It's a natural progression. You meet a stranger, you look at kale salad, and you start talking about stools. <laughs> it was, it was it felt, just an everyday occurrence in my life. Felt right at the time. <laughs> and then I proceeded to work with you mm-hmm. as kind of a, you know, we didn't even have a name for it back then. You still don't really have a name for it. You have, we come up with this moniker, Mind, Mind Architect. Architect. Yes. But you are just your product you're selling is freedom. Correct. And I'm I'm buying. I've been buying for 10 years. <laughs> Hopefully I'm a step or two closer than I was back then, which I definitely have made some great strides. But you know, you're big on language. I'm trying to figure out lately what is freedom? What is the freedom I'm searching for? Is it freedom from suffering? Is it freedom from pain? Mm-hmm. Is it freedom from being a victim of life's circumstances? Yeah. Beautiful. And I, I recall that day with fond memories. And you are family and I love you. And I just want that to be pronounced publicly. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just been such a joy to be in each other's lives. At least I can speak from my side. Ditto. And, you know, doing the whole heal thing and what that's led to and the people's lives that we've touched and the work that you put in to make that happen and the people you curated. I just, I just want it to be known that I feel, you know, very fortunate. Uh, to be part of that journey with you. Oh, thank you. So if it was kale and poop that led to that, then so be it. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to give you credit because I I think you freed me up to be able to answer that calling and move forward with confidence, even though I didn't, you know, I'd kind of fake it till I made it. Yes. And and I also recall, you know, like you with such a beautiful compliment saying like, you know, of all the people that I've managed to pull together for this with some big hitters out there in the world who are obviously making big changes for people's lives. You know, you said you're the one that's influenced my life the most, you know, and for that reason, I want you in the movie. You might, you might not have a book or you might not have the same sort of platform or recognition, but, you know, it was, it was just flattering for me to hear that. And of course, a hundred percent accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so anyway, that journey has been beautiful and all the different screenings we've done and panels and people I've got to meet by virtue of that. So, but to freedom, it is elusive little bugger. And yet the irony is it's always there. It's perpetual. So we could say that as part of your question saying, well, I have gotten closer and I've made these strides and I faked it till I make it. I would say the irony is that freedom is on the other side of the eye that's having that conversation. So freedom is ever present, but it is by virtue of the fact that we misidentify with the identity that we think we are that is in the way of the freedom that's always available. Come again? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you could say that again, but that was... Yeah. Take notes, people. Yeah. (laughs) Rewind. Write that down. (laughs) Just give me credit. Uh, (laughs) It's a, you know, it's an ever-present state. But because we become misassociated with the idea of ourselves, that becomes the obstacle, the barrier to entry to the very thing that ironically we're looking for, which is that which is on the other side of who we confuse ourselves to be. We become misidentified with the human form and the narratives that we have in our head sort of perpetually 
about what we don't have, what we want, what we shouldn't have done, how our history isn't good, how our future is not looking great. And then all of the emotions that are sort of the natural cascade of that into depressions from our, our history and anxieties because of our futures, that all belongs to the persona that we become misidentified with. But in the dissolution of the idea of oneself, then all you're left with is freedom. But therein lies the irony. That's the old expression of trying to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? You know, one of my quotes, as you know, I write in quotes and the person uh, trying to get rid of the ego is the ego. Mm. It could take a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, and that ego hates any sort of death. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful image. One of my teachers and people often ask, you know, well, where did you get this from? And it really has been a sort of a download of consciousness and a stream of insights in my own life and through my own adversities, of which I've had many. Uh, it doesn't make me special. We all have to go through what we go through. But for whatever reasons, it's been a catalyst for me to have these revelations and these profound distinctions come to me. But one of the teachings that I really was enamored by and I felt the most resonance with was this guy called Srinasa Sagadarata, who's you know, this traditional Indian guru who, you know, he'd passed well after I had actually found his work, but I read his predominant book called I Am That. And it's a, it's a tome. It's a heavy, it's a heavy read. Um, I, did, I hadn't actually recommended it to more than two or three people in my life. And then I mentioned it on a podcast and I'm getting all these messages and DMs that are like, holy shit, like you mentioned that book, I bought it. And it's taken me like three weeks to read the first five pages. But he had a beautiful image. He said, imagine that the persona is like a doll that's made out of salt and you throw the doll into the ocean. And then because by virtue of the fact that it's been thrown into the ocean, it dissipates, you know, the, the form dissolves. But you, the persona, has just been embodied and embraced by the whole. You're still there. It just seems like you fragmented. So the dissolution of the identity is the embrace of the whole. And so we could say that that's freedom. Just got to get rid of yourself. (laughs) (laughs) No big deal. (laughs) Then, I mean, this is a big question and you may not have an answer what is the purpose of life then? Like, do you believe? You right know, there, that's it. Like, Realize you're a salt doll and throw yourself in the ocean. <laughs> I do it every day. I, I try, I try. Right. Yeah, I mean, is it like we be, is it like our soul's evolution? I mean, there's so many like cliches out there. Yeah. What, any sort of insights that have come to you is this, you know, people liken this lifetime and we live many lifetimes and it's a classroom, you know, and we, mm-hmm. the soul perhaps elects you know, a certain challenge, which would explain a child coming into this world with like leukemia or yeah. a person dying tragically in a car crash at 17 years old or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I believe there's an intelligence kind of keeping the whole thing far greater than any of us could compute um, yeah. on an individual level. But what, what is your take on, on, on what is, what is the purpose of this whole thing? I, I think purpose is, you know, it's one of these words that's tossed around a lot in the spiritual circles and self-development. And I think it's actually a huge disservice to people because they equate it with a behavior. They equate it with an action, right? What's your purpose? The subtext of that question is always implying there's something that you're supposed to do. It's like this legacy that you're going to leave to humanity. And so I think I just want people to perhaps recontextualize that. I don't see that as a tall purpose. I think purpose is revelatory. Like one of my shorter quotes, I say, life is revelatory, meaning it reveals that which is in the way of the essence of who you actually are, which I would assert is the purpose to discover. So it goes back to the same question, which is your nature is freedom. Your nature is love. The very essence of who you are is abundance. 
but we become misidentified with this limited idea of ourselves. And then that human tries to find purpose, which is really, you know, a misnomer for value, right? We could say that like purpose is one way that I could ascribe myself some worth. If I know what my purpose is, then I'm really going to be able to attribute some sense of value to my life. The irony is, like I was saying about freedom, is everything that we're looking for in that context of worth or value is beneath the idea of the you that thinks you have to do anything in the first place to get any value. So I would say that's purpose. It's revelatory. It's to reveal that there's absolutely nothing for you to do, whether it be like to change the world or make a difference. All of these things are beautiful and I'm all about them. But if it's to look at somebody's individual true, like the poignancy of being human, it's the opportunity for awakening to your true essence. So I would say purpose is not something you do. It's something that you reveal. Nice. Beautiful. Beautifully wrapped (laughs) in articulation. Thank you. I would say that, you know, you're very committed to revealing human potential Mm -hmm. and which is why you're, you know, you go to bed early. You just have great structure to, you know, allow yourself to reveal what is the greatest human potential of health, of creativity, of expression. And as such, you re- you work really well with athletes. Yeah. So I, I always get so inspired by pers- real stories of someone that you've worked with, especially like yeah. a pro athlete who's yeah. elite at what they do yeah. already, but then they hit a roadblock and you help to remove that constraint in their mind to free them up so they can be in the present and access that flow. Yes. Can yeah, you yeah. share what, you know, a story about a pro athlete and the transformation that you help them? Achieve? Sure. I mean, it's, it's so fun. I mean, we're both athletes in our own regard, right? Like we love to be active and take care of our bodies. And I certainly love playing sports. So when I got first introduced to a professional athlete as the opportunity to help them as a client, it was just, you know, it was very exciting. This is like 15 plus years ago, but it was, so fun to see how this shit works. <laughs> like it's not, it's not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. It's like, wow, I have a conversation with someone and obviously the degree to which they, they assimilate, they get it, they integrate it and they can apply it. Then we get results pretty much instantaneously. So I think one of the first ones that was, and I literally had one coming down here, you know, to see you, uh, like I was on a call with one of my baseball players. So I'll share that too. Like it sort cool. of gave me, you know, makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. But um, the one that comes to mind because it was so early in my career working with athletes was another baseball player who he, in in sort of the stereotypes of baseball players, you've got the big hitters who sort of do the 20, 30 plus homers a, a season. You've got the small guys who are more utility and they might be good shortstops and they have other roles, but they're not big hitters. And, you know, they, they play their part. And they might get five to six home runs in a season. And this guy was sort of middle of the road. He was a solid athlete. And he would typically in his career have gotten 12 to 16 home runs. And over the course, over the span of almost an entire season, albeit it was across two seasons. So sort of from, you know, towards the second month of the previous season. And now we're into the end of the first month of the next season. He hadn't had a home run. And it was just, you know, a pro athlete who's getting paid millions of dollars to perform and somebody who was proud of his contribution to the team. It was starting to really irk him, you know. And so he called me one day from the parking lot of the field. And this is prior to a game. And we were talking about it. And he's like, you know, I'm just pissed. And guy kind of mentality of a locker room. You can imagine he was getting teased. And, you know, the, the 
there is buddies, there is teammates. They say, don't worry about it. You're not a big hitter. Like you're not a power guy. Don't worry. You know, like, so they're just messing with it, which of course is only exacerbating his frustrations, even though it's in jest. And um, so he, you know, and I were just talking about it. And I said, listen, I always like to take people to what seems like, you know, counterproductive, but worst case scenario. So I said, if I told you for the rest of your career, you never hit a home run again. And he probably still, you know, very reasonably had a good five, six years available, you know, as a professional athlete to him based on his age and his, his health. And um, I said, would you be okay with that? Now, when the mind is first confronted with a worst case scenario, which is, of course, like the genesis of the fear, you know, so I'm really taking people to the fear, holding a space of love and safety so that they can be with it and realize, actually, I am okay. You know, there's usually hesitation, like, because he, of course, he doesn't want that. He's an athlete. He's performing. He wants to do well. So I understand the context, but I said to him, could you be okay with that? Like, I know that's not what we want. That's not what I'm wishing for you. But could you find a place within yourself that you could find some peace that if that were to happen, that you would contribute in other ways and you could have a great career? So, of course, like I'm holding his hand through the process and eventually he gets to the yes. And I like to bring a lot of humor and I'm like, you know, so, or do I need to call your mom? <laughs> um, so he got to this point and he's like, yeah. And I said, so how does that feel? And he's like, it just feels like a weight off. You know, I just feel like relief. And I'm like, yeah, because what we've done is we've collapsed time. You're, you're sort of dragging your history around, which is the reflection of what you haven't had. And the brain, which is designed to predict and protect, is now superimposing that unfulfilled history into a potential future that is in the moment creating this angst and concern. So if we can like mitigate and reconcile all of it, then all of a sudden you're free, which is the sensation of relief that you just got. He's like, yeah, it's like, it's not what I want, but I'm like, it's okay, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And you could almost feel just in his voice, his shoulders drop and his breathing cadence change. So that was probably about three o'clock in the afternoon. The guys get there about three, four hours before a game. And we were playing the Cardinals. This was for the Arizona Diamondbacks I was helping at the time. And his second at bat. Oh, my gosh. Home run. I mean, the text he sent me was like, you know, it's sort of making my cheeks tingle. But it's just, you know, the joy. Mm -hmm. And the irony is it goes back to your question about purpose and freedom. That happened in the absence of him. Mm-hmm. That's that flow, you know, and this will lead into the story that I had driving down here where it was no longer the human being, the idea of himself with a history that was littered with the absence of a home run and therefore frustration and depression and anxiety into the future that this might be perpetuated. But in the absence of all of that narrative, which itself is the constraint, he was at peace. And in a state of peace, an athlete who has arguably had millions of swings at a baseball bat, there's a unconscious response to a ball coming to him where there's no thinking required. And so it was actually the dissolution of the part of him that was in the way of his ability to hit a home run without quote unquote thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, his text was just so full of joy. And it was that was like really sort of the foray for me into like recognizing the power of the mind over someone's ability to perform once they quote unquote get out of their own way, mm-hmm. which again is like something that I hear so often from my athletes, you know, if if only I could get out of my own way. So that's sort of in itself, even in the languaging, it points to the idea of like, I could get out of my own way. There's sort of this almost bipolarism in the way that we relate to ourselves, right? There's the essence of my capabilities. And then there's this frailty of the part of me that's scared that sort of is the constraint to that being expressed. So, so this happened last night, literally last night, uh, as one of my 
favorite athletes I've worked with now for six, seven years. He's an extraordinary first baseman. He's now with the Cardinals. And um, I met him at the Diamondbacks too. But just one of my favorite human beings, just because he's such a good guy, let mm. alone an incredible athlete. But he's working with me through the season. So this was our scheduled call today. And he said, you know, last night, it's just so crazy. He said, like, I was 0 for 4, which in baseball means he's had four bats and he hasn't had a hit. And honestly, in his mind, he's like, they were pretty ugly. You know, I've swung at some bad pitches. And so for an athlete who knows their capabilities and has done this literally thousands of times, like there could be a degree of accumulated frustration as he's 0 for 1, 0 for 2, 0 for 3. And then you see guys slamming bats in the dugout and whatever. Yes. So he's done all of this work now. And he said, you know, what's crazy is it was a tied game. And he went to over, uh, he said he went out to defend, you know, after his fourth at bat. And he started having this conversation with himself. And he, you know, he was applying one of my quotes is what happened, happened and couldn't have happened any other way because it didn't. Right. Which is his ability to then go, you know what, I'm over four. Like, am I going to like cry over spilt milk and hold on to that, which is creating tension. He could feel it when he was in the field. And he's like, or oh, can I just make some great defensive plays and maybe I'll get another at bat, which it turned out he did because it went to 11 innings because it was a tight game. Wow. So he steps into the bat for the fifth, uh, steps into the box for the fifth time. And he's now found what we term surrender. You know, I said like similar to you, I said it was the dissolution of the you that could have been frustrated, holding on to a history and then constantly worrying about the same thing being repeated, which again, another athlete that you introduced me to actually with DeAndre with the NBA, same thing, mm -hmm. right? So Worrying about a future that hasn't happened yet creates tension in the moment, which for an athlete is, you know, a complete kryptonite. So anyway, you know, you probably guess the end of the story, but he steps into the batter's box. Oh, my God. Home run. They win the game. Oh, my God. And he was just so tickle pink. He's like, if it weren't for that, he said that probably wouldn't have happened. If it weren't for the work that we've done, for me to be able to reconcile and surrender to my history, fully accept it. And then he said, honestly, I don't even remember. He said, my swing in the first four felt like it was terrible. And he said, as far as I know, it wasn't even a better swing in my fifth at bat, but I wasn't worried about an outcome. And his brain and his body, which again, has literally done this process a million times, knew how to respond to the external event, which in this case was a pitcher throwing a ball. And so there's the, often that commentary in media after a game where they're, they're like, what were you thinking about? It's like, I don't know. It's just, it's the absence of the persona. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of the eye that's trying to do something, then the event itself can happen effortlessly. And almost just as his own lesson, mm -hmm. it can't happen any other way because it didn't. Had he not gone over for thought of you and your quote, surrendered and went yeah. up there, the lesson wouldn't have driven home so much, yeah. you know, because it was, it gave him that suspense of, yeah. oh, I could build frustration. That's the natural thing. I could build mistrust in Peter or the universe or everything. this shit doesn't work. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, wow. Yeah. It, it's even more impactful, you know? Uh, and and it, it appeals to one of my other, like we could say main products, which is trust, right? So, you know, trust is, I would assert one of the hardest lessons for a human being to learn because the nature of life is uncertainty, which we've discussed you and I a lot, you know, just in our work together. And, you know, for an athlete, and certainly with a lot that I've dealt with, who could have had a lot of woe, as is often the case when you're at the highest level, you know, it's not like you're in high school and you're the best, and then you're an amateur and you're the best. It's like, well, welcome to the big leagues, literally and figuratively. It ain't that easy, you know? Everybody's the best. Yeah. 
And then all of a sudden, it's like I'm not getting the results that I'm accustomed to. And that itself can become an athlete's demise because there's this expectation. So trust is recognizing there is this divine intervention of some form that is taking you through whatever trials and tribulations you need in order to develop the, the values and the qualities that are the precursor to truly performing in whatever. You don't have to be an athlete. You could be at a stay-at-home parent or a teacher or um, an executive. But it's like, okay, where can I see that I'm not leaning into trust? And in fact, I've too much control, there's too much manipulation, there's too much predictability in my mind trying to figure everything out. So for him, it was also that, that yes, this couldn't have unfolded any other way because it didn't. And for that reason, I'm both accepting my history, but I'm trusting my future. Do you have a quote about that? I think, like, what what's the term, you know, because I hear it from different, Michael Beckwith says, you know, the universe is always for, or God is always for you, never against you. Mm-hmm. You know, Gabby Bernstein, the universe has got your back. Like what, mm-hmm. how do we really, there's so much suffering and yeah. stuff occurring in the world right now and throughout history that people question God can't exist because how could that energy allow these abhorrent things to happen? Yeah. Which is the word I know you use. Um Yeah. So, I mean, how do you get people to, if they're going something through that or they've gone through something like that in their past, how do you get them to then step into trust? I think more than, you know, again, because I'm so fastidious about language, as you know, so I wouldn't get them to do anything. I think, like, I want them, first of all, to feel loved is always where I start. Because people do have an immense amount of suffering and sometimes pain. And there's a subtle distinction. I think pain is more physiological. Suffering is more psychological and emotional. So whenever I'm speaking with anyone, regardless of this, whether I've known like my athlete I was talking to this morning, driving down like for seven, eight, ten years, somewhere in there, like uh, on and off, or someone I'm meeting for the first time, the energy that I want to bring is a space that is safe and loving. The getting someone to trust, which I understand your question, you know, we may end up there, but I think more than anything, what human beings need out of the gate is to be held. And in the absence of trust, there's fear. And if someone's scared, what they're asking for is reassurance. And so rather than getting into the dialogue, which a lot of coaches and teachers and spiritual teachers and, you know, there's this sort of in therapists and psychotherapists, they come from a solution-based mindset. And more often than not, that perpetuates the very issue. But if I'm trying to solve people's problems, I'm actually endorsing the fact that they have some. Mm-hmm. And in my world, they don't. And the only way to access the space of real freedom that you don't have a problem is to not be the guy who's trying to help you get somewhere because then I'm actually reinforcing the idea that you're not where you're supposed to be. And that's a lie. Yeah. Yeah. So to be able to help people really go, wow, I get you're in pain or in this case, more often suffering and you're exactly where you're meant to be. How do I know that? Because that's where you are. So your suffering is not because of where you are. It's because of the dialogue you have that is saying you don't want to be or you shouldn't be where you are. So suffering to me is inextricably connected to resistance. The degree to which we resist life is the degree to which we suffer, is one of my quotes. 
So I would meet them there first before I even talk about the distinction of trust, is to get that someone right now is fighting. They're fighting life. And that is a futile battle. Mm -hmm. But it's very real for them. And they're really under the impression that if the circumstances of their life were different, they would be okay. And that's the lie. Because that's a futile battle. Because that person right there who may have been laid off and maybe somebody in their family is not well, and these are the circumstances of their life, we can meet them in 10 years and let's say their family's healthy and they've made multiple millions of dollars in their business. I promise you they're still going to have their issue, even though their circumstances are exponentially improved. Because they haven't reconciled the part of them that is in conflict with life. If that is the only thing that people get from this, then they will find an immense amount of freedom that they probably never had before, which is it's never about your circumstance. It's always about your relationship to circumstance. That is so true. And the story we tell ourselves about that circumstance. Yeah. So that's where I would meet someone is I would, first of all, come with unconditional love that I get it. I get it. Because invariably, any story I've heard, even though I may not have had the same exact details happen in terms of a life experience, I'm familiar with the emotions they're having as a result of it. The hurt, the disappointment, the frustration, the anger, the sadness, the anxiety. These are things I'm familiar with. Why? I'm a sentient being. We're humans. And so that's where with empathy, sympathy, compassion, whatever word you want to use, you can meet someone. Just meet them. And this is where guys really struggle in relationships. They don't get that oftentimes their partner, their sister, their mother, their spouse, their wife is just saying something. They're just expressing a feeling. And women are very good at that. Guys, not so much. And for that reason, guys don't listen. They react and they try to fix or solve, which is not meeting someone where they're at. So if, if I have a couple of gifts, I'd say certainly one is listening, but the other is just to come from a place of love and just meet someone where they're at. And invariably that itself will reconcile, I'd say, a good 80 to 90% of whatever they're dealing with, which is the suffering, which is a byproduct of their resistance to life. There's nothing in life that's really life-threatening. And again, one of my quotes, I say, if it's not life-threatening, it's ego-threatening. So I'm really dealing with the ego-threatening part. Obviously, if someone's you know been stabbed or shot or <laughs> and they need to go to the hospital, then I'm not the guy you call. <laughs> I mean, I drive pretty hard. How can I surrender to this? I don't have sirens. Gunshot wounds. Right. So... Again, it's like it reminds me of this TV pilot I did many years ago for the BBC in, in London. And during the course of working with somebody, as is often the case, and you might have seen in some of my podcasts, like sort of an occupational hazard, I sit with someone and then boom, you know, we start to talk about their personal details. And then there's this sort of breakdown. And even with, you know, strong, burly guys like Aubrey Marcus, and then I just recently did one that's coming out with Danica, you mm -hmm. know, which will be so fun. But anyway, this uh, pilot in the BBC, the same thing happened. The woman I'm helping break down tears. Uh, there's a woman and then a guy. And the director came up to me after and says, like, gosh, like, what are you going through when you see this human, like, so sad and they're crying and they're hurt? And, like, does that, do you not get worried or, like, that you've triggered that? Or I'm like, no, because I know how the story ends. Like, I know all of that is superficial. That belongs to the persona. And I'm revealing who they are beneath the persona. So, yes, listening from and love and loving. Yeah. And we could actually argue, I'd say, true listening is love. So true. And I have glimpses of it. And then I fall back into, you know, 42 years of judgment, which <laughs> yeah. comes from my hurt child yeah. or the constraints in my mind. Yeah. 
So we live in this like very unforgiving society right now. There's cancel culture and divisiveness and, you know, political, like, especially in this country, just, it's just gnarly. Yeah. Otherness and separateness. You know, that saying hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And this is not to excuse the, the, the evil things they do, but the guy that goes into the supermarket in Boulder, Colorado and kills a bunch of people. Mm. Wasn't at he some point so damaged as a child that he is now cultivated in this anger and hatred and, and separateness and this illusion? Yeah. How do we forgive people like that? How do we listen with love to people like that? I'm just I'm just trying to understand like forgiveness when yeah. someone seems so not worthy of forgiveness. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah, there's so many things as a society and as a species that are just so triggering for us. And yet, I always point people to this beautiful video called Step Inside the Circle. And it's so profound, and I hope anyone who hasn't seen it takes the opportunity after this to watch it, where you find it on YouTube or Vimeo. And this beautiful woman, I don't know her name, but goes into you know uh, correction facilities and works with these inmates. And in this particular video, she brings everyone out into the the yard and puts them in a big circle. And I'm guessing there's anywhere between 60 and 80 guys or something. And she asks a series of questions. You know, one might be, you were raised by a single parent. And if you have a yes to any of the questions, you step inside the circle. And when I watched that as a very sentient being and sensitive being, but like certainly someone who can recognize other people's suffering very readily, it just really brought a tear to my eye because here we're putting these people behind bars as the sort of the scum of society. But what is so evident, if you pay attention to that video, is they had no choice. Mm. They had no choice. And so it just sort of breaks my heart that we're exacerbating the hurt and the absence of learning the language of love to those who need it the most. Mm -hmm. The berating and the detrimental language and energy we bring to those who are just doing the best they can to survive in the absence of anyone who showed them any other way is I find, you know, it's pretty disgusting is a strong word because everyone's doing the best they can, but it's pretty, it's pretty horrific when you see that that was a baby, that was someone's child. Like, and nobody, like, even in Heal, I say that at the end, you know, there's no one who does, doesn't see a baby and doesn't recognize the miracle that it is. And you can speak to that obviously now as a mom and what you've seen over the arc of these last two plus years, it's like, you know, it's a it's a crying shame when we recognize the potential that we see in the eyes of a baby that then becomes somebody that we loathe because of the way that we, in our all our almightiness, think that we're above them. And yet, if you would understand that they learned a particular language, and in this case, it was sheer survival and the only sense of belonging, which is so inherent and primal for a human being to want to experience, was that they found in a gang because there was no parent, their mom was a crack addict, their dad was in prison, and that their only semblance of some sense of relationship was when they found this guy who said, come and join us and we meet at 11 o'clock at night and we go and rape and pillage and do whatever they do to survive and get food. And that was the language they learned. If I grew up in Madrid, I learned Spanish, Mm -hmm. you know? So an emotional language is something that I feel drives the show more than a linguistic language. And that's what I'm working with more than anything. So 
These are crimes, and as a society, we have whatever rules we've come up with, which are at some point, you know, pretty arbitrary. But it's sad, you know, if we could change the way that we view humans from the perspective of their conditioning versus a single act, mm-hmm. you know, and go, okay, well, if I have 10 lettuces in the ground and nine flourish, but one doesn't, I don't go over there and berate that lettuce and say it's bad and you know, sort of put it in solitary confinement. I might look at, okay, well, wow, it's in the shade all day. It doesn't get any sun. And because of the angle of the earth, when I water, it drains away from that. So it didn't have the conditions to thrive. And it's no different for a human being. So I think our responsibility as a society is to look more at the conditions that we are providing or not providing for people before we start, um, you know, casting aspersions about the fact that they're just an awful you know, scum of the earth type human being. So I have this personal story like that just came to me and it just sort of warms my heart by virtue of one, I feel blessed that I'm this kind of guy, but two, the way the story ended up was I was just literally going down to Manhattan Beach for a date. And by virtue of the fact that I'm a man of integrity and I like to do what I say, I was running a little late. So I was driving a little quicker than maybe I might. I missed my exit. So I had to go down one other exit, turn around, go onto the freeway, come back. And now I'm probably, you know, I'm doing about 85 or whatever, you know, forgive me for my sins. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and out of nowhere, I get bumpered in the back of the car. On the 405, I'm doing 85. So if wow. I'm getting hit by somebody, wow. um, you can imagine they've got to be doing 90 plus. And I was like, wow, I like just totally, you know, I'm just looking at my exit. I've got this hot date. I'm going to, <laughs> the last thing I'm thinking about is anyone rear-ending me. Yeah. So anyway, this guy, like this car suddenly pulls out, takes off. And I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not the confrontational type, but like, you can't just do that and take off. Like, you know, I've got a lot of horsepower with the car I'm driving. I'm like, so I follow him. He knows I'm behind him. And he takes us exit, which fortunately was mine. <laughs> and and he, he's trying to get past the car. And there's a big pothole. I can remember he hits it and, you know, all this water comes out because it'd been raining the night before or whatever. And anyway, you know, I'm not advising, you know, don't try this at home, kids. <laughs> but like he pulled into this parking lot just off the exit. And I, I guess for whatever reasons with my intelligence or my wherewithal, I got out of the car as quickly as I could. So I'm the first out of the car so he could hear my voice. So there's something in my voice where I could say, hey, everything's okay. Because right? yeah. I don't know, it's like someone's packing heat. He Diffuse, gets out of the car. Yeah. It's like, you know, he's scared. Like he thinks he's in trouble. I could be an undercover cop. Like, I don't know what, you know, what's going through his mind. Fortunately, you know, he's like, he comes over and I was like, hey, you okay? He's like, yeah. I said, dude, listen, you can't hit people on the freeway and take <laughs> off. You know, it's like, it's not how it works. And um, I mean, I could tell like immediately there was something a little off. And so I said, listen, Let's just check the back of my car, see where it's at, and then let's just exchange insurance. And then he's getting closer, and we're talking. Like I said, uh, first of all, I said it's okay. Like you know, I'm not I'm not going to report you or do anything. Let's just figure this out. Yeah. I said, but I'm going to ask you a question. Please be honest. Have you been drinking? And he said yes. I said, well, thank you for being honest. It was the night of like the 49ers were in like one of the conference series games before the Super Bowl. This yeah. is how many years ago it was, or whatever. And so he'd driven back from Vegas where he'd met friends and I guess because of work and he had to get back, whatever. The guy probably had a great time trying to find some relief from his life, come home, doesn't justify his behavior, but, you know, he's had too many to drink and he's on the road. I said, okay, first of all, you're not going to drive your car. You're married or whatever. We're going through the papers. And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, make sure you let's call your wife. She can come and pick you up. You'll leave your car here. You'll get it in the morning. 
So we're going through papers. He pulls out his insurance and then a ring falls out of his wallet too on the ground. And I said, is that your wedding ring? He's like, yeah. And then you can start to see the heaviness, or at least I can see it. And I was like, is everything okay? He's like, ah, I don't know. We're not going, we're not, you know, things aren't going well. And I said, it's okay. She's still going to come. He's like, yeah, she'll come, but it's not looking good for us and whatever. You know, he was just a sweet guy, you know? So I'm like therapy on the side yeah, of the four yeah. or five after I've just been rear-ended. <laughs> you hit the right, the right <laughs> dude. <laughs> yeah. So the reason I'm sharing the story is not in any way to like sort of, you know, pat myself on the back and say, you know, like, look what I'm doing. I'm just saying like, what's possible when we greet people with love and acceptance. And again, that's not always the smart option. You know, like there's literally people out there who are quite dangerous and evil, but um, usually in positions of power, unfortunately, as we're seeing. (laughs) Um, But anyway, the sweetest guy. And so he got, got picked up, went home, blah, blah, blah. He called me the next morning, like sobbing. You know, he's like, I don't know who you are. You're like my guardian angel. Uh, he said, like, I'm so sorry. I said, it's okay. Like, my car had barely any marks. You're home safe. You know, this is an opportunity for you to revisit stuff. And he's like, can I do anything for you? And I was like, no, it's fine. Like, I said, if you want to meet for lunch or something, you know, but uh, so we met at Whole Foods of all places, apparently where it's all go down. <laughs> if you want to catch me, you know, it's like, meet me at Whole Foods. You're the Whole Foods angel. Yeah. <laughs> I hope this leads to a massive sponsorship. Uh, <laughs> So we had the most beautiful chat. He he declared that he was having about 72 units of alcohol a week, 72, a unit being a beer or whatever. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a lot. And anyway, so I helped him understand some of where that was coming from. And he and his wife got back together. They bought their first house. And it oh, was wow. just, yeah. So he was a kid who was just needing an opportunity. And any other quote, unquote, good citizen would have like called the police and arrested him. And he would have gone down a very like, you know, predictable path. Yeah. So in the presence of love and, you know, compassion, there is an opportunity for powerful transformation. And I'm not saying everybody has the wherewithal or the skill set that I do to be able to do that, but at least maybe that gives someone the opportunity in their own family to maybe the berating they've had towards their kid or their sibling for whatever they've been struggling with. Maybe they could just back off a little bit and show a little more compassion and see in the presence of space and allowing someone to step forward what actually shows up versus just pushing somebody down and making them wrong. I think making people wrong is, um, again, one of my quotes is saying, making people wrong is the poor man's version of Mm self-worth. Where, you know, I get some semblance of like kudos for me and self-gratification that I'm right if I can make someone wrong, which is really, as I said, a a pretty pretty pathetic way to try and find some semblance of value. Yeah, totally. So anyway, there you go. Long-winded stories, but... Uh, It's a beautiful story. And it just goes to show, I feel like there's so many... I mean, there's so many places I want to go with this. So here's what I'll say about that. You changed the trajectory, quite possibly, of that kid's life. Yeah. We all have the power to do so. We all inevitably have at some point in our life. Maybe we do every day. Small acts of kindness, the butterfly effect. I believe that as more and more people, as you're sharing your teaching and, and other people are doing the same and people are watching Heal and they wake up to a new way of you know, getting closer to accessing freedom mm-hmm. and being able to become aware and go, oh, I should just listen with love, Yeah, be the change. You know, then we start to teach our the next generation a different way of being because we were never really taught how to process emotions yeah. or self-regulate, you know, very yeah. few of us anyway. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's a, a conversation that's getting more broad and mainstream. Yeah. Do you get triggered ever? And if you do, how do like what's what's your process? Because I imagine that you 
may get triggered, but then you go, like you taught me, you know, mm-hmm. you, you look forward to getting triggered because it reveals where you're still not free. Exactly. But yeah. are you, do you still get triggered or are you totally free? It's such a rude question. I know. Do <laughs> <laughs> my architects get triggered? <laughs> Darling. <laughs> um, no, of course, I'm human. You know, I think the degree to which I get triggered is infinitesimally less and it's not to the same degree. And it's like you said, it's an opportunity. So I sort of embrace it all. And going back to the freedom comment, like if I'm embedded in the energy of freedom, then I can have whatever emotions I want as a human, which is really like you as a quintessential mother. Like if you look at the sort of unconditional love that hopefully most mothers intuitively know to share, especially with their kids, then their kids are going to have the extremes of joy and the extremes of tantrum and the extremes of anger. Like, but the mother is the space within which all of it arises, right? Now, of course, there's parents that like put these dampeners on kids' expression. This is where we start to get into issues. Like, don't do this. This is bad. That's wrong. And then the kid is starting to be trained and conditioned to behave in its own way, which is why, you know, we could argue that there's therapists and even people like myself have jobs because people have become so suppressed in their ability to be self-expressed. So the difference is for me, whatever is that seems like an external catalyst, first of all, I know it's not out there. That's the illusion. It's revealing something in me where I haven't tapped into my expansive true nature. So therein lies the gift. So it's transitory because it's an opportunity where I'm like, okay, that upset me. And whatever my version of upset is, you wouldn't even see it probably in my life, but I can feel something. I can feel a tightness, which you know typically wouldn't be there. I can feel some rumination that I typically wouldn't have when I'm trying to figure things out. Or I could even feel like some emotion that is around concern or worry. You know, I think we've got like a whole sliding scale, like you've got panic and terror, and then you've got fear, anxiety. And, you know, as you get more comfortable being okay with life, less fear, but there can still be like a, a smaller bedfellow, which we could say apprehension or, you know, a little bit of worry. So I occasionally get that, but again, it, it, it gets framed in a way where it's like, okay, cool. What have I forgotten about the essence of who I really am, which is on the other side of my concern? So if it's like, say, like for most people, it could let's say it's around money, you know, and I was orphaned at a very young age. I've had to do everything I have by myself, worked very hard to get to where I am. And so deep in my primal patterning, maybe not my sort of prefrontal cortex mature mind, I know logically that I'm okay and that I won't be hungry, but there could be a primal instinctual reaction to something out there that is around financial security. Something, you know, if a client goes or I had a big opportunity that seemed to be good and then it didn't happen and, you know, I could maybe feel like, oh, ooh, you know, there's that little bit of holding. Mm-hmm. So in that case, all that reminds me is like, oh, hang on a minute. I am abundance. So I always use external triggers as a reminder for internal essence. So when we know that who I am is everything that I'm looking for, again, one of Pedro's quotes, but like, if I know that who I am is everything I'm looking for, then whenever I get quote unquote bamboozled by life to think otherwise, it's a reminder that who I am is the very essence, the very experience of what I think the illusion is that what I think could be found in the external world, whether it's 
financial security, validation, acknowledgement, safety, reassurance, whatever it is that people look for out there is really the, you know, the, again, the poor man's version of an attempt to compensate for the inner belief that I don't have that, which itself is the lie. So all I'm doing is revealing the lie that is on top of the very, you know, well-established essence of everybody that is always ever-present. It's just to what degree are we actually in union with that versus separated from our own idea of ourselves, uh, from, from the essence of ourselves by virtue of the idea of ourselves. Oh, so you know me so well um, <laughs> by now, and I still have this kind of exhaustion because I, I still feel this survival vigilance like of trying to please people. And mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable for me when someone doesn't like me or when they judge me or yeah. when they talk shit or whatever. And yeah. I've heard so many things. And in the moment, I'm like, aha, and I feel free and I feel lighter. And my chest is open. Yeah. And then, you know, three days later, I'm back in real life and I'm not being <laughs> fully expressed because I'm so vigilant about what this person might want. And then I deliver yeah. it in a way that they are appeased, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, what can you say to me? <laughs> How do I finally break out of this damn thing that exhausts me all the time? Yeah. And just allow, I think it has to do with like trusting that I'm inherently good. It's trusting in my essence. Mm-hmm. Help me like let go of that, <laughs> please. <laughs> yeah, please. Break free. Break free. You know, so, I think it affects my ability to lead because I tiptoe around things. And yes. You know, it affects every area of my life. My relationship obviously has become mm-hmm. codependent at times because I'm afraid yeah. that if I am fully expressed or I say what I really feel or express anger or rage, yeah, um, then I'm not, you know, this meditator that I claim to be. It's that imposter yeah. syndrome. So, yeah, 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 yeah. <sighs> give me yeah. a little ditty, please. <laughs> So even in that breath there at the end, right, there's some relief just with that big exhale. One, because you've got to express what's there for you. So that's beautiful because that's an expression of self-love. You're being vulnerable with me and the audience to show what you deal with, which is beautiful because so many people are going to be able to relate. So that's a gift. But, you know, whether it's around people pleasing or why that someone doesn't like you, what would you say is the actual underlying drive? Because these are terms, and I'm not saying they're inaccurate, but like, what's, what, what can you? Because you've done enough work, and certainly we've chatted plenty. But like, what would you say is the underlying intention with those behaviors? Because people pleasing is a behavioral adaptation. Mm-hmm. I think it is about either feeling not safe. Mm-hmm. So it's a fear that if if I'm fully expressed. These people may leave me or yeah. turn against me. Yeah. And I will feel very unsafe. Yeah. That's one component for sure, right? Then it's about seeking outside validation because I'm not fully trusting in my goodness or yeah. value. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, this is real. This is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, but it, it has a real impact on you every day. And you've mm-hmm. got such a big heart. I've known you for a decade, as we've declared. And I know you're just so full of love. But I can see, like, the hamster on the wheel, which is your emotional state, just constantly trying to do the right thing and get it right and make sure you don't upset people. Mm-hmm. But also, because I know from having worked with you, there was, like, a lot of conditioning around when you didn't do something right, what you received, right? Yeah. 
do you want to share anything there? Can you? Like, or what was the ultimate fear? <laughs> my poor dad. <laughs> it's okay. You listen to my solo episode. He's like, just listen to your first episode and your your mean ogre old dad <laughs> still loves you, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's not about him. He was the catalyst for you to yeah. see why you're here. So and he doesn't have to take any of this in terms of personally. He correct. can be responsible, but correct. it's no fault being attributed to him. Yeah, he just, he was, you know, he was very military. Um, he was raised by a Marine who, you know, had drinking issues for most of his life. So he's a product of his environment. So he really, if things didn't go as he expected them to go. He was yeah. the hardest on himself being a product of that father. Yeah. Um, and then in turn, he was hard on our, us as well because it just made him feel yeah. out of sorts if we spilled the milk or, yeah. you know, um, didn't get the answer that he wanted or lost something. Yeah. And so he was, you know, a six foot three big guy and I was this little child. And yeah. so his, his short fuse temper was terrifying. Yeah. So I was became early on very vigilant about what I could do to keep everybody happy so that I would feel safe. Yeah. No, but feel into that, right? Because you were going there and then you started to explain things, yeah. which is a little <laughs> bit of a deflection, which is fine. But like, so what's that like? You've got this little girl, big man screaming and shouting, little girl confused, hurt. And what else? What's the main thing she's experiencing? Sadness. Sadness for sure. But fear? in terms of but yeah, fear, she's scared. scared. Yeah. And I would use the word scared. Fear is more fear is more an adult way of describing it. But mm -hmm. for a child, it's I'm scared. I'm scared so even in the way you started to describe your people-pleasing behavior, and if someone doesn't like me, and like what what the energy is behind that narrative is I'm scared. Right? Mm -hmm. People pleasing, why? Well, because I'm scared that mm -hmm. they're not gonna like, I'm not gonna, they're gonna get upset. Like whatever the external result is, is really because of the energy of you're scared. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what would be that you've sort of touched on it? If someone's scared, what are they saying about their surroundings? They're not safe. Yeah. So that's one of them. So I break down time into three aspects of past, present and future. So as it relates to present circumstance, the way that you felt was not safe. But one that a lot of people really struggle with is the way they relate to their future. So not only are you not safe, but what's going to happen about the future? What is the underlying dialogue in the way that you're anticipating what could happen? How would you put it in a future context? <sighs> it's okay. <laughs> so that little girl, yeah. she's anticipating something, right? The other shoe to drop, dad to come home again, scream, shout, mm -hmm. I'm in trouble. Someone doesn't like me. I'm rejected. Like it's all future based, right? Mm -hmm. Anxiety, fear, being scared, that emotion is based in time around a future that isn't favorable, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So if we've got a future view of our life that isn't like great, then we have to have anxiety. Like my guy who went 0 for 4, if he'd maintained that concern and he was worried about going 0 for 5, then he steps into the box with anxiety, worry, that creates tension. As an athlete, when you've got tension, you're not going to be as responsive and he doesn't hit the home run to win the game, mm -hmm. right? But he's like, oh, okay, hang on a minute. I don't know what's going to happen, which is the nature of life. And as you know, one of the main tenets of my work. Mm -hmm. So you've got this little girl who, by virtue of the experiences she's been through, no different than the men in the yard at the correction facility. Mm -hmm. So there's no fault. She's just scared. She's heard a booming voice. She's in trouble. She's crying. It's scary. It's scary. Everybody understands that. Mm -hmm. So there's compassion, first of all. It's okay. But now 
She's got scared because of something that happened, past tense. So she's in a state of fear now, but then she's also got some sort of fear about the future. That's where your anxiety comes in. That's the exhausting part for you, right? Yeah. So your view, your relationship to the future is based in the same energy of fear. Yes. So what must you be saying about your future? I mean, what's coming up for me, and I, I don't maybe not be answering this correctly. That's okay. But it's just my people-pleasing is a way to control so that I can feel safe and not have an uncertain future. Yeah. Which, how it's was manipulation, that right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's not working very well because the thing is with control, it's an illusion. You only need control if you're living in fear. And control is an illusion anyway. What you're actually controlling has got nothing to do with outcome and everything to do with your own internal emotional state. Mm -hmm. See, in the absence of any concern for a future, why would you need control? You wouldn't. No, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> How about we go there today? <laughs> great. <laughs> Welcome to my world. Thank you. So well, let's go back to the question because you're doing great. So in present state, you can understand the emotion of being scared is a byproduct of the fact that your brain is interpreting your environment as something that's not safe. Mm -hmm. Right? That's just physics 101. If I'm in an environment that I am interpreting, interpreting is not safe, then I have to experience some of the, you know, those bedfellows of fear, anxiety, being scared, mm -hmm. and um, apprehensive. But when it comes to the future, it's a slightly different resonance. So I don't think you not being safe is what's driving the show for you so much anymore because we sort of worked on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think it's more in the way that you relate to the future, which is if you're not, if you're not safe in the future, because it's still the same energy, but it's based in time and a different point. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not safe in the future, how would, what would I feel about that? What am I saying about the future? If I'm, if I, because I don't know the future, but I'm feeling not safe about it. Yeah. So what is my narrative about it? It's going to be bad. Yeah. Worse, yeah. No, it's going to be bad is more objective. Okay. Make it personal. So how are you going to fare in the future? I'm going to be alone. I'm going to fail. I'm going to be disliked. Yeah. Carry on. I'm going to be hurt. Yeah. See, now this is more close to the bone, right? Because it relates to you. It's like, it's going to be bad. That's sort of out there. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to be like, I'm not going to be gonna... okay. There you go. Thank you. That's uh -huh. one I'm of the contexts okay. that I work with with people that will be revealed, all 10 of them in my book. <laughs> We're getting a when is that damn book coming <laughs> out? <laughs> it's coming. So now just sit with that. So I want you to consider that Kelly Gores Noonan's like, future is I'm not going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that leave you feeling? If that's the future you're constantly, constantly stepping into, is you're not going to be okay. How does that leave you feeling? Really sad and like scared. <laughs> yeah, but that's your reality, my dear. Yeah. It's okay, but it's powerful for you to be able to feel it. It's your truth. Yeah. The way you relate to the future is you're just, whatever it is, a friend that you're going to upset, a husband who you can't speak up to because you'll be left, a, a potential client who's not going to sponsor you, whatever it is, like your health, whatever you might say to your dad and he's going to explode or, right? Mm -hmm. So you're constantly, and I really am reinforcing this because I want you to get this because this is deep for you. You're constantly relating to the future like you're not going to be okay. Yeah, which is so ironic because I like 
manifest great things and I meditate and like, yeah. you know. I, Which are behavioral adaptations to yeah. this energy, right? So oftentimes we do the things that we feel we need to because of the energy that we're actually already embodying, for which reason it's maybe, you know, relief is transitory, but it's futile eventually. Mm-hmm. So just get for however many years, and I would assert it's been three plus decades, maybe not right from the get-go, but, you know, it's close to 40 years where you've been relating to your future from the perspective of you're just not going to be okay. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah, every decision is overwhelming. Yeah. Because I fear not making the right decision. You have to from the perspective of you're not going to be okay, right? Mm -hmm. That's a load, you know, and for somebody as smart and as resourceful as you, thank God, you know, you've managed to take care of yourself with exercise, good food and meditation. But for somebody else, that is literally debilitating. That is taking lives, that is anxiety, that is panic attacks, that's people on Xanax, all of these deleterious drugs that people get prescribed because really they're just looking through a lens where their anticipation of the future is it's not going to work out for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's heavy. It's okay. So now you see all the behavioral adaptations around that, the compensations, the people pleasing, the urgency that you have, uh, right? So much urgency. So much panic. Right? <laughs> I just want to fix it so I, I can guarantee that I'll be okay. Yeah, which perpetuates the very deep-seated belief that you are yourself sustaining by believing that you're not going to be okay. Mm-hmm. There's not enough security, reassurance, or control that anyone can give you to compensate for the energy that you're sitting in that you're not going to be okay. You get that? Mm-hmm. See, now you start to see the futility of it, why it's exhausting. You're in the energy of you're not going to be okay. You're in it. So it doesn't matter what you do. At best, you get transitory relief. But you're always going to then wake up the next morning and be like, oh, shit, what do I have to do today to make sure that I'm going to be okay? which is purely a reaction, a knee-jerk reaction to the essence that you keep perpetuating. I remember last year, was working with you, signed up for three months again and did the thing. And I was on vacation and I had this conversation and copious notes in my journal and we were working on this, just we were just knocking down constraints one at a time. And this particular one was, um, I'm not safe. Yeah. And, and we went to I am not not safe. Yeah. And you left me after that session so free. Yeah. And it lasted a long time. Yeah. So beautifully, like the universe orchestrated it in such a crazy, miraculous way. Because the, the minute I landed from that vacation, I walked into my house to probably one of the scariest, unsafe moments of my life. Yeah. And it was so wild because the work that you had prepped me with didn't even know that the timing was perfect, but I didn't even panic. I was just like, Oh, no matter what the outcome of this is, I will be okay. Yeah. And, you know, obviously (laughs) I fell back a little bit, but it's it's pretty amazing. It's like the timing was just like the 0 and 4. Yeah. And then stepping up to the plate the fifth time, because it could not have been better. And, and, I'm still dealing with the situation, but I, I, I know I'm going to be okay. But it's just so funny that still underlying insidiously is this yeah. um, need to feel, need to control and, and control yeah. my circumstances, which everybody's trying to do. And yeah. this is why life is so exhausting and disappointing. And 
people drink and take Xanax and all these things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And meditation for sure helps. But again, all these things that I'm just like, they're tools. Yeah. But you're like pulling out the root or, or, you know, moving the tree so that the sun can come in. Yeah. Yeah. And grow better lettuce. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's beautiful. And what we worked on was more of a present state relationship to life, which I'm so happy to hear that. Obviously, that had a powerful impact for you in a very otherwise difficult circumstance. But this is deep and this is more primal and we haven't really touched on this one. This is new for you, which is why it's eliciting such a beautiful and powerful response for you, which is the way that you're relating to your future. And Mm -hmm. now you can see that, wow, if I'm looking through the lens of I'm not going to be okay, then I have no choice. There's no choice in it. Just like the inmates, they had no choice but to break the window, steal the bag, you know, because that's all they knew in ways of getting money to feed themselves and then they got caught and now they're in jail, but they had no choice. And this is where we have a lot more compassion. So you had no choice but to become a people pleaser, to be super vigilant, make sure you're not upsetting anyone because your future is at stake, like mm-hmm. literally like at stake. The primordial incentive of any organism is to survive. And that's why it's so strong and it's okay, but it's also completely illusory. <laughs> That's the good news. Mm. This is why I love what I get to do. <laughs> you know, it's a dissolution process. So, you know, not to leave you hanging there because you're doing amazing. But so you're looking through the lens. We've obviously presenced that. You get to see, wow, my relationship to the future is one based entirely on my own preservation. But I only have to try and preserve myself and survive by virtue of the fact that I believe I'm not going to be okay. So now you've been through this with me a few times. But if I can ask you a question and you can only answer yes or no. Is it true? Can you categorically say yes or no, that you're not going to be okay? No. Yeah. You just can't, right? It's the reality that you create. So that is the energy of manifestation that will change your blood pressure, will change your heart rate, it will change the tension in your body, the degree to which your endocrine system is pumping cortisol. There's a reality that impacts you and is deleterious over time, and this is why people get sick. Mm -hmm. So if we want to understand healing and disease, this is like right here live, the dissipation of potential future disease, which is amazing. So now you get to see, wow, I'm creating a shitstorm both in terms of emotions and chemistry in my body, based on an illusion of a future that I don't know, but the way that I perceive it is, it's not going to be good. And so you've got your ducks up and you're ready to go to survive, and that looks like people-pleasing or control. But we just said that you don't know that you're not going to be okay. It's not a truth. So in the absence of that lens, in the absence of knowing or believing that you're not going to be okay, that's gone. How does Kelly feel? Fantastic. Fucking fantastic and ready for a nap. You almost fell out of your fucking jet. (laughs) (laughs) So come out. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 Pretty cool, huh? And the irony is I am a kind person and, you Mm -hmm. know, I have a lot of compassion. So Mm -hmm. some of these behaviors that may have an energy behind it of manipulation Mm -hmm. have equal doses of sincerity as well. Of course, of yeah, 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 yeah. But without this lens of fear that I'm not going to be okay, the manipulation goes and the compassion just gets so much deeper. It's this like subtle mm-hmm. thing. So, you know, my kindness, my compassion just gets, and my okayness Amplified and, with yeah. someone else's actions and yeah. my own. Yeah. So, <sighs> so no one ever has hated you. They're just hurt. 
happy people don't hate people. So now that you're not looking through the lens of your own preservation and survival, you'll get to meet people. You'll get to see people. And you'll get to see how much suffering there is out there. Mm -hmm. That itself is sad. But it's not a personal sadness. It's a collective sadness. And this is why I'm so passionate about my work, is to be able to help dissolve that for people as we just witnessed here so beautifully by virtue of your courage. So thank you, you know, and now you get to step into a new relationship to yourself and life. And whether it be with your dad or your husband or a partner or, you know, a business opportunity that Kelly knows in ways that she doesn't have to know that she's always going to be okay. And I can't say that you're always going to be okay is going to give rise to the circumstances that you subjectively want. Right? I don't know the details of okay, but I do know energetically okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Do you understand? In spite of circumstances. It's got nothing. Like, you know, your most okay outcome could be where what you subjectively think you don't want is what happens. Mm-hmm. So we've all had that experience, right? Like the person we were dating that they called it off or they broke up with us and we're like, this is devastating. And so for us at that moment, subjectively, it's not what I want. I'm not okay. I'm not going to be okay because I want that. Check back with that person three, six, eight months later. Oh my God, I met the love of my life. Thank fuck that didn't work out. You know, it's like, so that's where the trust component gets sort of grown over time is with maturity as you realize you take a few knocks in life you know we can call that wisdom is like wow you know i realized despite all of the adversity that i've been through it's always worked out Mm -hmm. so i can kind of get over the fact that i think i know what's best for me Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) which is so liberating you know so then that becomes true trust or if you're religious it's faith and it's like oh wow i realize in ways that i could never comprehend that life is taking care of the details. And in fact, at a deeper level, which is maybe a conversation for another time, the essence of who I am, my very soul is coordinating all of these events for its own liberation and emancipation. I will attract, and that's real manifestation, one of my favorite quotes, life will present you with people and circumstances to reveal where you're not free. Mm-hmm. And I would say you're coordinating that. You are orchestrating at the deepest level, unconscious, you don't know it, but you're bringing into your view the things that you're here to reconcile such that you can break free. Mm-hmm. And today, my dear, you just stepped into another version of more free you, which is beautiful for everybody, your daughter, your husband, yourself, your family, because there's less, there's one less person trying to manipulate an outcome, trying to control life, and basically lying to people in a way that is not to be judged because it's self-preserving, mm-hmm. but is nonetheless a deterrent to true intimacy and connection, which is what we all crave. So, so let's you just, just need do- to single-handedly work with seven point five billion people. <laughs> Do you have the time? I'm getting, uh, yes, I I can't even imagine the small percentage I've gotten to, but like I'm doing what I can. So in the absence of the fear that you're not going to be okay, what becomes available to you? And more in the way that you feel. In the absence, so your whole life, I would assert, it's a bold claim, but for the most part, almost four decades. Mm-hmm. You have been driven by a concern for a future that hasn't happened yet, which has given you the experience of anxiety, fear, and exhaustion in the way that mm-hmm. you then try to compensate for that. If that whole thing is just gone yeah. by virtue of the fact that we've seen it's not a truth, in the absence of like that constraint, we got that you said, fucking, I feel fucking fabulous, right? But now <laughs> what becomes available for you in the way that you could conduct yourself and the way that you go about your day? 
Yeah, um, I think a lot more energy. Yeah. And maybe access to intuition and just full expression yeah. and creativity. Yeah. yeah. You know, and just way more presence. And what, be what becomes available in your relationships? Listening. Listening, yeah. <laughs> Um, versus protecting versus protecting and yeah vigilance compassion and yeah like relaxation meaning the, the, the lack of grasping and holding and control yeah is there urgency in the world where you don't have to worry about a future no no isn't that nice it's so nice <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's lower blood rate you know blood pressure uh heart rate you yeah know. ironically my heart rate has been very high at night for the last like several yeah. months yeah and i'd yeah. be curious to see how that physiologically yeah changes. i promise you whether it's only a beat or two there is going to be energetically a shift in your physiology to the degree to which you can embrace this and again it takes practice life is going to present you just as it does with circumstances that will you know test to see okay oh you think you now trust life let's see how you're doing right mm -hmm. like so it's going to see if we've right. really embodied and integrated this like oh okay it's not up to me to try and manipulate control or figure it out. That's exhausting. And it's based on a mindset of insecurity and scarcity. But if I'm held, I'm taken care of, then oh, I can just relax. And so that will get, you know, but I promise you physiologically, that is the precursor to healing. Whatever imbalance could have already been there, whether it's a high you know, heart rate or poor sleep or but the thing I also want you to recognize is what a gift to you and your relationships and the people that mean something to you and that matter to you is that, yes, it looks like you're doing them a favor by not wanting to upset them and being kind and being a people pleaser. But no, now you actually get to be in relationships. Mm -hmm. You actually get to be in a relationship. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. Like people don't relate to each other. They say what they have to say in order to survive each other. That's not a relationship. That's self-preservation. Okay, two last questions. Yeah, you okay. <laughs> <laughs> Taking my experience and what we just went through for the people out there listening, there's a lot of people with physical disease. Yeah. Disease. And would <sighs> argue, well, there is urgency because I have stage four cancer or, yeah. you know, MS or whatever yeah. it is. Can you just go one layer more when it comes to a life-threatening illness, mm -hmm. how does one surrender, accept, and be okay or trust mm. that even though the doctor says future is pretty likely to be not okay, Yeah, how can I find the peace that I'm feeling right now? So again, it sort of ties into everything that we've touched on. It's like freedom is not of the circumstance. It's of the person who's resisting circumstance. So their problem is not with the stage four cancer. It's not with the fatal diagnosis. That's not the problem. That's circumstance. The problem is that you don't want it. And it might seem, what's the word I'm looking for? I, I don't want to belittle or dismiss that experience that someone's having. But if you look at the energy of it, it's no different than a kid who's given one toy, but they have a little bit of a tantrum because they wanted another toy. It's the same energy. Obviously, someone's dealing with cancer and maybe they're a parent and they have you know, loved ones to care for and a spouse, and I, I get it. But the same energy, I would assert, has been there throughout their life. And this is the culmination of decades of resistance. 
The kid that wasn't happy because they didn't get what they wanted is in denial of the fact that life is giving you anything. And so there's a, a deep sense of lack of gratitude and appreciation for the gift that it is just to be alive. And if people could just shift and recontextualize, like my mom died of cancer, I'm sure she didn't want it. As a kid, I didn't really understand. And I could uh, certainly say I didn't want it. But the degree to which I learned that that was her karma, and hence my karma, is the degree that there was no suffering and it was just an event. And there can be the human experience of I miss her and I was sad and that's okay. But what we're really looking at here is the fight that is happening. You know, again, I'll say like, you can't have world peace as long as people are at war with themselves. Mm -hmm. And people are at war every day with themselves, as we just saw here. You've got a beautiful life. You've got all the resources, a beautiful family. There's nothing you're wanting for. And yet, again, by virtue of your courage, we got to see the war that has been going on for decades inside of you. And if we can help people to find peace on the other side of that battle, then we would have a very different species in a different world. So I would invite people to see where are you fighting your diagnosis? Where are you fighting your circumstance? Even the whole fight against cancer, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but that is a massive disservice. Mm -hmm. That's not how you get rid of cancer. Mm -hmm. It is the love of cancer. It is the integration because it is the love of self, it is the love of me, and it is the love of all of my imperfections that is the absence of dis-ease, which brings ease, which itself is a precursor to healing. So the more we let go of the fight, so whatever anyone's dealing with, first of all, I send my love, I send my compassion. I'm sorry if this is scary for you. That's all it's really going to be, mm-hmm. is that you're in a state of resistance and the degree to which you can find some semblance of acceptance for what it is, that does not mean resignation, but I have what I have. And there is what there is. So rather than even saying, I have cancer, there is cancer. I am the essence, the being that is beyond that. Mm-hmm. And form is always changing. And so if I come from a place that is founded in love and acceptance, then that is a healing energy that could, depending on the state of the form, transform the form into something else. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it so many times. I have a perfect story, if I may share, just because it's very, you know, please. recent. Please. So just a client I started working with had thyroid cancer. To the point that he's a very successful man. He's like mid to late 40s. You know, he's not quote unquote wanting for anything but thyroid cancer. To the point now that he couldn't swallow because the drugs that he was being given created a hole in his esophagus, which is a known side effect of taking this these drugs. Anyway, when we met, it was just before, and then he went into the hospital because they had to give him a feeding tube because he couldn't swallow because it's too painful. But similar to what we just went through here, I helped him see the association with the area of suffering, throat, thyroid, and his four decades, similar to you, four and a half decades, of suppressed Mm self-expression. Because he was under the impression as a kid he didn't matter. And certainly his feelings didn't matter. So then why would he ever say anything? Mm. Even to the point now that he's married with a woman who loves him, but he struggles to say what he wants. Even if she's preparing something, and I'll give a beautiful story about now what's on the other side of that, he would just acquiesce and go along because what's the point of saying something when your relationship to yourself is that my feelings and my opinion don't matter. Mm. It's the quintessential kids who are seen and not heard, right? Mm -hmm. And so he had this complete energetic block which manifested as the disease, the fight which was self-expression of a human being, which is natural, 
the psychological conditioning of the mind, which is unnatural to suppress that conflict, manifests as sickness. So in the course of our conversation, it was just, you know, again, brings me to tears that I get the beauty of doing this work for people because he said, I've never felt so fucking happy in my life and I've got a throat in my esophagus. So I've got a, a hole in my throat in my esophagus. So he said, people were calling and say, oh, dude, I, I heard you're getting a feeding tube. This is awful. He's like, no, I feel amazing because he made the connection. And this is his words verbatim. He said, I've now realized that through the power of my mind and the intelligence of my body, I'm going to be better than I've ever been. He was taken off the drugs because they said you're normally the drug period, whatever it was, was three months. And by that time, we see a 50% reduction. We said, they said in three weeks, we've seen a 70, 80% reduction. And he said, he's laughing with the nurses. He said, I'm telling the nurses and doctors stories I've never told my friends because uh, I found my voice. Yeah, he wants to just express that. He's now. just he like a playful kid. Yeah. And like within the space of 10 days of us talking, he went from a, where I could barely understand what he was saying because he couldn't speak to, I wouldn't say it's fully normal. There's still some raspiness, but his whole voice was starting to come yeah. back. But what was most important for him was the energy and the essence of the fact that he recognized there's nothing wrong with him. His nature is vitality. But by virtue of the conditioning of his mind, he created sickness, which was his dis-ease. Mm -hmm. And that in the breaking apart of that, seeing the, the untruths about how he had viewed himself, his, his opinion is valid. doesn't mean that anyone gives a shit, but like you can still express it. Yeah. And the part I want to say about the story is like his wife mentioned something about she was going to make this particular pasta dish. <laughs> I mean, this is, this, this is so beautiful because it's so mundane, right? Yeah, it's just yeah. everyday life. And he said, he said, for years, for years, I've just gone <laughs> along with it and I don't even like it. And he said to her, he said, you know what I love is that lasagna dish you make. You know, it's just like, God, oh, just, it, it, you know, and he got uh, to, it's so simple. Yeah. But, and she said, oh, okay, I, I love making that for you. And right there, there's a relationship. Mm -hmm. oh my and he God. got, you know, it's so simple. <sighs> but that ability to express that was previously the accumulation over years of not saying what was there for him mm -hmm. that led to the sickness and all of the impact of that, which has been huge. But now he's on the, meant you know and that's beautiful but just him and his wife you yeah. know he said like already their relationship is so different he and his kids he said i've never been so present with my kids oh my gosh yeah and i love what you say in heal you said you know you can fight yeah. which is the western approach to cancer with yeah. agent orange and other chemo type <laughs> yeah. drugs and you can bombard it with radiation and chemo but if you don't change the frequency, if you don't change the environment, mm -hmm. mental, emotional, physical environment, yeah. the cancer will return. Yeah. Most likely. Yeah. Same as biggest losers. People lose like 200 pounds. They lose a whole person. And then you check back with them four or five years and they're back to 400 pounds. So they haven't changed the psychology. They haven't changed the idea of themselves. The idea of themselves. So beautiful. So lastly, okay. talking about relationships, <laughs> yeah. you're like the world's most eligible bachelor, or maybe you're not, <laughs> but you talk about, you know, going on a date. I, I would imagine that women are intimidated. Are you even able to be in a relationship with someone? Because you're so, <laughs> you're so, people would feel intimidated. Like, no, of course. Like, finish your question. I think it's just that. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, you know, women, men out there that probably find you very attractive and are so moved by your work. Mm. And, but then go like how, even myself, like I was already in love with my husband at the time when I met you, but I had the thought like, 
I could never be in a relationship with this guy because he, like, <laughs> he would like speak into my soul and I feel so exposed. And like he'd, he'd find out that I was a fraud, you know, <laughs> a manipulator and a people pleaser. Um, so I just wonder how that is navigating romantic relationships for you. Um, I mean, in a word, it's fun. Like, I don't look at it that way at all. Like, even your concerns, like, you're like, oh, wow, he'd see that I'm a fraud. No, you're the one concerned about that. I'm not. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm coming from love. I love you for you, you know? And so I'd really be the container in which you could meet me there and see, oh, wow, like, you know, this guy loves me for me. Maybe I could, like, join the same program and love me for me. You know, so... No, I mean, listen, it's a sweet question. I don't think I've actually been ever asked that in a podcast. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming. You know, I, I'm I'm very me. And I'm actually, I would say I'm probably the easiest person to date, despite, you know, your perception, because I don't bring the baggage. Yeah. I let people be who they are. And if they want to go, they go. And if they want to stay, they stay. And if they want to do this and that, and it's like, okay, I love you. And I, of course, I'm going to have my personal preference. It's not like I'm this emotionless human like I'm 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 playful I'm caring as you know like I mean I just I love being with people who I love being with and I love being even with people who maybe I don't love being with but I want to help and help them find some semblance of love like you uh, you got today and freedom so yeah I again I just I guess I embody trust with all of it and if I'm supposed to get married and have kids I will if I'm not I won't and that's my karma I really want to, as best as I can, put to one side any sort of personal objective or expectation that could create any pressure. And really, in the, in the essence of surrender, I find that all my needs are met beyond my wildest expectations. So I don't give it too much thought, but I just love people. You know, it's like people are doing the best they can. And I feel... I feel like I literally might be the most fortunate human being on the planet by virtue of the way that I get to see things and help people like you, even as long as we've known each other, to go through what we did today, let alone a stranger I've never met still talking on the phone about thyroid cancer. And now he's never felt more excited about his life and he can ask his wife for lasagna. Like, you know, it's like I get to do that every day. I mean, it's insane. So that's my relationship is that I have a relationship to life. And I feel very fortunate that it's an intimate one because I'm fully present with it. And whatever comes and goes with that, whether it's money, beautiful, romantic relationships, I I feel blessed for all of it. You offer these courses for people so they can access your wisdom. Yes, that's true, yeah. How can people find you and your courses and your work? I think the best way now is the dizzy heights of social media, Instagram, Peter Crone Official. They can find me there. My website is just my name, petercrone.com. And yes, there's a few, like we've done three workshops now, uh, which have been awesome. And then I do have my Free Your Mind course, which is sort of like the pinnacle product. And um, in sort of knowing we were going to do this, we actually created a code for the Heal community. Oh, so cool. if people want to just at the, if they want to take any of the courses or the workshops, they can just put Heal 20 and they will get 20% off anything that they want to buy. So Amazing. Yeah, I mean, hopefully people see the power of this work and certainly through what you just did and went through. And certainly the Free Your Mind program would would show even more of that. So anyway, that's the way to find me. And if they want to do the work, they can access it that way. Amazing. Thank you. That's so generous of you. And uh, yeah, they have, you have an amazing two hour and change one on health. Yeah. So people, you know, dealing with physical condition may want to check that one out, but just yeah. then the free your future. Yeah. That's you all have, about time. Oh, it's so good. And then we did one about relationships. So yes. they're the workshops. And then the, the courses free your mind is a little bit more 
involved, like you're prompted to answer questions, you have a worksheet you have to go through. So it's more like a course structure, whereas the workshops are more like you sit and it's like a two-hour download of all of these insights and wisdom. So whatever people are into, they can get that 20% off. So just as a way to try and help the community. Amazing. And you're hilarious to boot. Some of my funniest moments, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) She's a goofball, everybody. I don't know what comes out of me when I do those, but it's a lot of fun. It's great. You will even see me dance and sing, depending on which ones you buy. (laughs) (laughs) Be warned. Yes. Yes. Peter Crown, Pedro the Crone. Thank no, you. What a joy to be with you, my dear. Didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't huh? either. I think, yeah, you know, three, yeah. three nights of low sleep, no sleep. With <laughs> Just with your guard My down. toddler, my guard was down. Damn it. Yeah, so. No, thank you. I feel very honored to be able to, to work with you so intimately and yeah. hopefully by sharing my personal experience, other people that can't have direct access to you for yeah. geographic reasons or otherwise, you know, they, yeah. can, they can get a kind of a mirror neuron effect. Yeah, I'm just excited to see what unfolds for you now in the absence of like constantly worrying about a future that hasn't happened yet. Me too. No, just more freedom and more love. And I hope people, you know, get a lot of that from this conversation. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome, my dear. Much love. Much love. (laughs) Thank you for listening to The Heal Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear more empowering wisdom and inspiring healing stories. Oh, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that one episode that holds the answer you've been searching for. Follow us on Instagram for some behind the scenes fun and more inspiration at at Heal Documentary and at Kelly Gorris. Take care and be well. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.